Hello and welcome to Season 2, Episode 6 of Bad Gays, a podcast all about complicated and bad gay men from history. My name's Hugh Lemmy, I'm a writer and author. And I'm Ben Miller, a writer, researcher, and member of the board of the Gay Museum in Berlin. Last week we talked about the colonialist Gordon of Khartoum. Who are we talking about this week? This week we're talking about someone who, in 2002, was profiled on the front page of the Europe section of The Guardian under the headline, Dutch Fall for Gay Mr. Right. Here's the article. Quote, Under the watchful gaze of his black-clad, dark-skinned bodyguards, the flamboyant, white-skinned, and shaven-headed homosexual who aspires to be the Netherlands' next prime minister outlines his views on immigration. The Netherlands is not an immigration country, he tells his audience. The annual stream of tens of thousands of newcomers, who largely end up as illegal aliens, must stop. Full is full. We're living on a small piece of land here. The article, which described him as, quote, the new dynamic face of the right in Europe, noted that he had just come from nowhere to dominate local elections in Rotterdam. Quote, the unconventional candidate with a penchant for lapdogs and luxury is forecast to win 20% of the national vote. Why is the liberal media so obsessed with the style and haircuts of these people? That is a question, the answer to which is still putting all of us in profound danger. But this is 20 years before Richard Spencer, almost. And they're still saying, oh, here's this hot guy from the far right, but he's got a haircut, he looks like he's sharp. I, maybe this is sort of the origin of that story. Anyway, we'll, we'll get into it later. Um, the unconventional candidate, the article said, with a penchant for lapdogs and luxury, is forecast to win 20% of the national vote. Highly articulate, telegenic, and oozing charisma, he has wiped the floor with establishment politicians in TV debate. In matters moral, he is as liberal as the next famously tolerant Dutchman, and one of the reasons he favors zero immigration is because he believes it is undermining the ultra-liberal, permissive society he cherishes. Christianity and Judaism have gone through the laundromat of humanism and enlightenment, but that is not the case with Islam, he is quoted as saying in the article. Modern society places an emphasis on individual responsibility, whereas Islam places an emphasis on collective responsibility and the family. And he, in the article, is quoted as saying he did not believe that, quote, the Netherlands' liberalism should be diluted by fundamentalism and intolerant Muslim immigrants. The article described his political priorities, zero immigration and financial aid to would-be refugees to get them to stay in their own country. So today's episode is about a particular version of homosexuality and how it is compatible with a certain flavor of far-right politics. It's about how a certain kind of live-and-let-live attitude at the heart of liberal gay politics can immediately turn into a wave of immigrant-bashing hatred that turns inevitably on queer people themselves. And we're looking at all of this through the life of the man described above, Pim Fortown. So Pim Fortown was born on February 19th, 1948 in Dreihuis. Um, this is the time for all of our Dutch listeners to correct me on my Dutch pronunciation. <laughs> I did manage to get a phonetic uh, spelling of Fortown, but these city names, you are all going to have to forgive me. Um, he was the third child of a Catholic family. His father was a salesman and his mother was a housewife. He studied sociology uh, all the way through to a doctorate uh, at the universities of Amsterdam and Groningen, and he got his PhD in Groningen in 1981. And at this time, he was known as a pretty hardcore Marxist. 
and he taught as a Marxist sociologist for a while as an associate professor at the University of Groningen, and at that time he first became active in politics by joining the Dutch Labour Party, uh, the Partij van de Arbeid. And the Labour Party in the Netherlands is um, sort of like the Labour Party in the UK was before Corbyn, sort of a center-left party of government. So at this point, it's not the political party you would join if you were a firebrand uh, radical, but um, certainly a kind of mainstream center-left social democratic party of the 1980s. Um, In the 1990s, he moved to Rotterdam, and he continued to teach as he became more and more involved, first in city and then in national politics. And because of the Netherlands' famous kind of live-and-let-live tolerance, he was able to be uh, totally openly gay this whole time. Now, his political aspirations and his nationalism both uh, kind of came to the fore as early as 1991. He wrote a pamphlet called To the People of the Netherlands, which mirrored a patriotic and nationalist text of the same name from the 1780s. Now, the text from the 1780s was all about sort of standing up to a unified, corrupt political elite, and that's sort of what his text was about, too. It was a call to the people of the Netherlands to kind of stand behind him against this uh, elite. He became a political columnist. His professorship was ended due to budget cuts, and so he started a consulting and kind of motivational business speaking business, and through that business ended up funding himself a very lavish lifestyle. He had a big house in downtown Rotterdam. He had a butler. He had a boyfriend who was a commercial photographer. Um, I mentioned the butler. The butler's name was Herman. And he was driven by Herman around the Netherlands with his two little dogs, one of whom was named after Herman's ex-boyfriend. Herman was also gay. Um, Herman (laughs) was... uh, Herman, uh, Herman Dickers was the butler's actual name. (laughs) Uh, Or maybe Dykers. Um, Let's go with Dickers. I like Herman Dickers. I like Herman Dickers, yes. Uh, Herman was uh, his butler, and uh, Fortown had a kind of um, overtly expressed class hatred for him. Um, When he wanted to hear the slave chorus from Verdi's opera Aida, he would say to Herman, put on your colleagues on the stereo. Wow. Um, When later in life, when accused of racism, Fortown replied, I don't hate Arab men, I sleep with them. Okay, yeah, a classic. One of them, yeah. Yeah. So uh, in 2001, his uh, political profile is kind of uh, on the rise, and he gets himself elected the leader of the radical centrist party, Livable Netherlands. Now, Livable Netherlands was a very, very small party. It wasn't a a big thing to become its leader, and it saw itself as sort of a non-ideological movement against the quote-unquote old parties. Now, at this time, the Netherlands had been governed for most of the 1990s by a grand coalition of parties of the traditional center-right, Christian Democrats, and traditional center-left, the Labour Party, under the leadership of the Labour Prime Minister, Wim Kok. (laughs) (laughs) I've already got a grow up. I've got a car in this podcast. (laughs) I don't see the problem, Hugh. It's Wim Kok and Herman Dickers. (laughs) Get your mind out of the gutter. So um, the Grand Coalition, uh, as Grand Coalitions tend to do, produces a lot of dissatisfaction with how things are going in the Netherlands, and this Grand Coalition was also responsible for 
uh, carrying out many of the kind of cuts to the social system that were happening in many of the traditional European social democracies in the 1990s. And so it's being done by kind of all of the parties together, and this produces a lot of uh, political unrest and a sort of desire for something else or for something new. Uh, and as in many places in the 90s, the organized left was uh, in a very weak state and not really able to take advantage of this. So Little Netherlands is sort of on the upswing, and he gets himself uh, elected head of it. Um, and even before he was elected head of this party, his kind of extreme views on Islam uh, were clear. In August of 2001, so just before he was elected a leader of this party, he gave an interview to the newspaper uh, Rotterdam's Dagblad saying, quote, I am in favor of a cold war with Islam. I see Islam as an extraordinary threat, as a hostile religion. Fortuyn said that Muslims in the Netherlands did not accept Dutch society, and he believed that Islam was fundamentally intolerant and incompatible with Western values. He said that Muslims in the Netherlands needed to accept living together with the Dutch, and if this was unacceptable for them, uh, they, need, they were free to leave. And he said, I want to live together with the Muslim people, but it takes two to tango. And he would always maintain that what he was objecting to was not their race or their ethnicity, but a lack of integration and an unwillingness to adapt to Dutch standards of modernity and social liberalism. And so even after he gets himself elected leader of this party, uh, he continues uh, making these very splashy media appearances, making these, frankly, very racist comments about Muslim immigrants. Um, in So um, in February of 2002, he gave an interview to the newspaper Volkskrant, where he said this, and I'm just going to read the whole quote out. Quote, I don't hate Islam. I consider it a backward culture. I have traveled much in the world, and wherever Islam rules, it's just terrible. All the hypocrisy. It's a bit like those old Reformed Protestants. The Reformed lie all the time. And why is that? Because they have standards and values that are so high that you can't humanly maintain them. You also see that in Muslim culture. Then look at the Netherlands. In what country could an electoral leader of such a large movement as mine be openly homosexual? How wonderful that that's possible. That's something that one can be proud of, and I'd like to keep it that way. Thank you very much. And one of the reasons why these comments were considered so outrageous is that uh, the word he used for backward, and I'm going to attempt to pronounce something in Dutch, achterlijke, um, also means um, mentally retarded okay. in Dutch. And so these statements were so controversial. Um, alongside that, in the interview, he said he wanted to end all Muslim immigration and abolish the parts of the Dutch constitution forbidding discrimination, um, that he was struck, uh, removed as the leader of that party the next day. And so the interview is the 9th of February, 2002. Uh, he's struck from the head of, Nether of Livable Netherlands on the 10th of February, 2002. And then on the 11th of February, 2002, he starts his own party, which is called Pim Fortam List. Um, now, Pim Fortown List uh, was also associated with a party called Livable Rotterdam. And Livable Rotterdam, as it might sound, was originally the Rotterdam branch of Livable Netherlands. But because he was in control of Livable Rotterdam, even when he was struck from uh, the head of Livable Netherlands, 
uh, Rotterdam kind of stayed under his control yeah. and was kind of the local affiliate of him for Townless. He took a party with him when he went. Yeah. And so in early March 2002, uh, there were Rotterdam municipal elections, and Rotterdam had been, since the Second World War, governed by the Labour Party, by the Dutch Labour Party. And uh, Pim Fortown's party, Laville Rotterdam, won in that election, its first election ever, 36% of the votes and seats, which uh, put the Labour Party out of power. And this set off a kind of political earthquake in the Netherlands because uh, in this major city here had come this political force out of absolutely nowhere um, to kind of dominate uh, local politics. 36% in a multi-party system like the Dutch is incredibly high. And so... Uh, he became the subject of hundreds of interviews during the months after this uh, victory and got kind of unlimited television airtime to communicate his message to the Dutch people. So, so this was a moment when the new European right was flowering, but there were big differences between Fortown and other right-wing leaders like Jörg Haider in Austria or Jean-Marie Le Pen. Um, one Big difference being that Fortown was very open about his gay life. He was a devotee of gay bars. He once observed that he preferred a dark room to the inside of a church. Um, he once said in a TV interview that he thought semen tasted like Berenberg, which is a Dutch liqueur. And partially because of this, he was able to present his politics as a kind of common sense liberalism. So now I'm quoting from uh, his book, Quote, with the Pim Fortown list, I am doing my best not only to channel the dissatisfaction and irritation of the people of this country and guide it toward an alternative to the present political culture, but, in this book, I have sketched how we can address the failures of the collective sector and public administration. We are thus not an anti-movement, but a movement for change, and also indicate how that change will look and how we will realize it. And so on the one hand, you have this like incredibly dry technocratic liberalism. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, this out there gay stuff and this violent racism. So here's some more uh, four town quotes just presented without comment. One quote, I will not change my opinion, dear people. It is five minutes before 12, not just here in Holland, but in the whole of Europe. And is that what you want? I take my stand for this country, that which has been built up in the last five or six centuries. Damn it. We have a fifth column. Okay, let me tell you now, straight, the way it is. A fifth column of people who want to destroy this country. I will not go for that, and I say you can stay here, but you must adapt. I must hear Allah is great, that I am a dirty pig. You are a Christian dog. That is what they say, and you think that is okay. And I have so far been very reserved, but you accept being walked over, and I will not let that happen anymore. And that is where I get all those seats from, because this country is fed up. C'est ça. This is what I stand for. And if I must express that otherwise, well, fine. But it is about your children, your grandchildren. For what else is this about? People have had more than enough of it. Damn it, in my city, Moroccan boys, Turkish boys, do not rob the Turks, the Moroccans, but rob you and me and little old ladies. And the police, what do they do? Damn it, nothing. They tell you, if you say that, you discriminate. And that is what I express from the Dutch people. And I stand for it. I stand for it. Is that not allowed? Okay, I respect that. Wow. Yeah. He it's went, a real populist, you know. Little, little old ladies, little Moroccan old ladies, boys. Moroccan boys. You're being menaced. It's it's like standard, standard right wing populism. Um, quote: I'm a hothead. What's wrong with that? Quote: Muslims have a very bad attitude toward homosexuality. They're very intolerant and women. For them, women are second class citizens. What we are witnessing now is a clash of civilizations, not just between states, but within them. 
Quote, If you try to discuss multiculturalism in the UK, you're labeled a racist. But here we're still free to talk, and I say multiculturalism doesn't work. We're not living closer, we're living apart. Quote, I'm not anti-Muslim, I'm not anti-immigration. I'm saying we've got big problems in our cities. It's not very smart to make the problem bigger by letting in millions more immigrants from rural Muslim cultures that don't assimilate. And Fortown pioneered a move which is now uh, furthered by many far-rightists um, at a time when uh, folks like Jean-Marie Le Pen and the Freedom Party were uh, mixing relatively open anti-Semitism into their uh, froth of politics. Fortown was always um, a declared ally to the state of Israel, and because of that, he claimed Jews as his allies. One of his books was called 50 Years Israel, But For How Long?, and proposed that the Jewish state might not be able to survive the threat posed by its backwards fundamentalist Muslim neighborhoods. And this mix created, ironically, a form of xenophobia that worked really well in a country whose nationalism was based on its tolerance. The idea being, it's not that we're intolerant of them, it's that they can't be here because they're too intolerant to be here. Yeah. Um, so... In the run-up to the 2002 elections, uh, Pim Fortown's party began leading in the polls and mostly was taking its votes from labor. Um, and there's several reasons for this. One, obviously, he's tapping into a certain kind of latent racism in Dutch society. Um, second, the Labour Party had been complicit in governing with the center-right and in uh, making a lot of cuts to the social and welfare systems. I mean, think about the cuts uh, that actually lost him his job in the university. And then that was combined with a period of uh, relatively liberal immigration policies. And it's not that immigration policies always produce a sort of far-right response, but open uh, immigration policies at a time of cuts to public services make it easier for people like Fortown to blame immigrants incorrectly for the declining quality of public services because people sort of see one and see the other and assume wrongly that they're connected, which they're not. Um, so all of the establishment parties suddenly realized that this guy shouldn't be laughed off and was a serious threat, and they began to attack Fortown as an extremist, but uh, he was very charismatic and able to give sort of witty performances in TV debates. Now, one thing that's important to recall about Fortown's political career is how short it was, um, how short it was, uh, a time it was that it took for him to come to prominence. So if you recall, it was in August of 2001 that he first became leader of Livable Netherlands. And it was in February of 2002 that he um, split off and formed Pim Fortown List. It's in March of that year that he wins the Rotterdam city elections, and then there's uh, parliamentary elections scheduled for that May. So really, um, in the run-up to these elections, when uh, he starts to start doing well in the polls, he's been a major political figure in the Netherlands for less than a year. It's a remarkably rapid rise wow, yeah. for any political figure, uh, never mind someone who is so <clears throat> unconventional. And on May 6th, nine days before the parliamentary election, uh, the newspaper De Volkskrant published a survey taken by an independent polling firm, which predicted that the Pim Fortown list would become the largest party in parliament, and that would have made Pim Fortown the uh, presumptive prime minister of the Netherlands, which is kind of an amazing thought, if you can believe it. Oh, I can believe it. 
and offense in Netherlands. <laughs> no offense to any of our Dutch listeners. Um, oh no, I come from England. We're <laughs> in a position to judge. Exactly, I come from America. Never mind. So uh, on that same day, May sixth, again nine days before the parliamentary election, uh, Pim Fortown went into a radio studio to give yet another interview, and was shot in a parking lot walking out of the radio studio. And the attacker was pursued by Fortown's driver and was arrested by the police almost immediately afterwards, still holding the gun. Um, this was the first political assassination in the Netherlands since 1672, excluding various deaths during World War II. Um, and the guy who killed him was a 32-year-old animal rights activist named Volkert van der Graaf, who had planned the attack using information that he got on the internet. He found uh, a map of the scene online, uh, schedules of Fortown's appearances, and he kind of put it together that Fortown was going to be appearing in this radio studio on this day and showed up. Um, it was very clearly the attack, the work of a single person acting alone. He was an amateur shooter. There was no good escape route. This was not a particularly sophisticated uh, killing. But partially because Fortown was such a media figure, and partially because, you'll recall, he was assassinated at, you know, during sort of morning primetime broadcast hours outside a media studio, this was kind of broadcast out to the Dutch people live over their breakfast tables. Mm -hmm. And so people followed this throughout the day, and it was one of these moments in a country when everything kind of stops and everyone focuses on this one thing. And immediately, there's this giant public outpouring of grief, which focuses itself on four places. Uh, Rotterdam City Hall, the crime scene, the monument to William of Orange, who's sort of the national uh, hero of the Netherlands, the National War Memorial, and the Homo Monument in Amsterdam, the wow. memorial to yeah, yeah. Um, gay victims of the Holocaust in Amsterdam. Um, politicians from various parties suspended campaigning, uh, but the elections were not postponed. Um, so nine days later, um, the elections are held, and uh, the polls turn out to have been slightly off. Um, his party was nowhere close to being the biggest party in Parliament, but he did enter at number two with 17% of the vote and 26 seats behind the Christian Democrats at uh, 28% of the vote. Uh, well ahead of Labour, who lost 22 seats. So basically, Labour lost just about as many seats as um, the four-town list won. Um, and actually, the um, four-town list was immediately invited into government by the center-right. Um, the government didn't last very long because of the uh, inexperience of their cabinet members. And uh, I mean, all the people on the list were new to politics and made a lot of sort of amateurish mistakes. Um, and a year later, there were new elections where labor won back a lot of its support and the four town list dropped down to only 5%. And a lot of people kind of thought that this had maybe just been a kind of aberration was about to go away. Um, unfortunately, though, um, his party was rapidly replaced by new Dutch far-right parties, uh, one, the Partij voor de Vrijheid, led by Jurt Wilders, um, and also the newer party, Forum for Democracy, which is led by Thierry Baudet. Now, Wilders is more um, socially conservative than uh, Fortown was, and so this Forum for Democracy, which is doing quite well in the Netherlands now, is probably the closest analog to 
Fortown's particular brand of politics. Um, but even in the mainstream parties, uh, right-wing politicians uh, really rose in prominence in the period after Fortown's success. Um, Rita Verdonk, who was in the People's Party for Freedom, which is the current governing party of the Netherlands, uh, the Netherlands Prime Minister being Mark Rutte, uh, became infamous for making a series of unbelievably kind of racist comments about um, Muslim immigrants to the Netherlands, and in fact vied for the leadership of that party uh, and did not win it. So this hype around his death became enormously important in Dutch political life, and uh, in fact, the pistol he was shot with is in the collection of the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam, alongside all the Rembrandts and everything else, although it hasn't been shown since his death, but it is there in kind of the national collection. And in 2004, in a TV show election, he was chosen above William of Orange and William the Silent, who was the leader of the War for Independence, as the greatest Dutchman of all time. Ten weeks after his burial, he was exhumed. He had been buried in his family plot in Dryhuis, but he was exhumed ten weeks after his burial to be reburied near his summer home in Italy, where he currently lies in a sort of grand mausoleum. The exhumation was broadcast live on national television. An opera singer sang Amazing Grace in Dutch. A white hearse covered in sunflowers transported the casket. And uh, scores of weeping followers who had tattooed his party slogan, which was at your service, just in English, at your service, on their shoulders. 150,000 mourners had visited his grave in the 10 weeks that he had been buried there, and few of them saw any inconsistency in this great nationalist having decided to spend the uh, eternity buried outside of his beloved homeland of the Netherlands. And that is the short and media-rich life uh, of the vile racist Pim Fortown. So we've been totally overwhelmed by the success of the show so far. Thank you so much to all of you for listening, but a big special thank you goes out to all of our Patreon donors. Yeah, so far you've funded a second season and an ongoing series of special episodes, and you've really helped us to improve our audio quality. But there is a lot more that we'd like to do, uh, and we're not sponsored by anyone. We're not backed by any media company. We make the show for you, hopefully soon with more episodes, more interviews, and you let us know that you appreciate the show by giving what you can. So now's the time we awkwardly ask for money. So, to support the show, visit patreon.com slash badgazepod to sign up. We send you newsletters, zines, novels, and more, depending on your level of support. Anything you can give is really appreciated, and if money's tight, a good review on iTunes or on your podcast app really, really helps us find new audiences. Thanks. That's patreon.com slash badgazepod. Thanks. Wow, what a story, yeah. I remember, I remember it happening. I remember his campaign. Um, because in England at the time, there was also a resurgent far right, but in the guise of the British National Party, mm-hmm. who were very um, old school Nazis, in that, you know, they were very anti Semitic and they're very homophobic. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I was young at the time, but I remember. Um, Pinfall Town being um, it was difficult I think for the liberal media to place him Um, and it's quite interesting how many of his positions have now been adopted by the far right across Europe really 
Oh, absolutely. Um, I think Fortown really prefigures this kind of newer, friendlier far right that uh, is on the upswing uh, all over Europe. Uh, in some cases, it's interesting, in places like France, um, the old party is still the same force, you know? So the Front National is now the, whatever it is, the Rassemblement National. Sorry, my French pronunciation is even worse than my Dutch. Um, but it went through this kind of generational change from Jean-Marie to Marine Le Pen, and it um, they renounced anti-Semitism um, in this kind of official way, although God knows I don't believe them, um, and, you know, came to terms with various things. So it, it no longer was presenting itself as this kind of explicitly anti-modern force, but kind of um, took the line of, well, now we're just trying to sort of fight to protect these freedoms that we have. And in the same in the UK, in the what had been the British National Party um, was sort of superseded after its collapse by the English Defence League, who were a street movement, but they had um, Israeli flags and um, rainbow flags on their demonstrations as if to say, we are the defenders of an English tolerance. <laughs> right. Um, and then in England, uh, in England and in Germany, you have the kind of other model where um, the old party gets superseded by a new party, um, maybe because in those cases the old party is just so toxic. So in Germany, the uh, NPD, the uh, National Party, um, although, you know, we can be flexible with what N stood for, um, is replaced by the AfD, the Alternative for Germany. And while the NPD would be uh, very explicitly anti-gay, and it's important to note the AfD is too. I mean, the AfD has put in um, parliamentary requests in various state parliaments where they're represented to uh, explore recriminalizing homosexuality, to explore recriminalizing sodomy. However, the IFD's kind of public rhetoric is two-faced, and so uh, one of their two sort of national co-leaders is a, a lesbian woman, Alice Fidel, and um, oftentimes they will talk about how uh, gays are just some of the people that they are trying to protect, and it's very similar language to uh, how people uh, kind of talk about Israel protecting um, gay rights or LGBT rights, uh, even though, of course, the parties that are in power in Israel and kind of underwriting that uh, national story, uh, that kind of pinkwashed national story, um, those parties are the parties in Israel that the most oppose um, any kind of uh, LGBT civil rights. Um, and then in England, it's the same thing where UKIP comes to replace the British National Party. And in those cases, rather than trying to sort of sanitize the party itself, um, they took kind of the approach that Fortown took, where you start to present this very radical thing as this kind of radical common sense alternative. Um, and by kind of coming out of nowhere and having this fresh name, you're able to attract people who might not have ever been willing to vote for a political force that had already been kind of made so toxic as maybe the British National Party or the NPD. And so it's kind of a far-right movement for a certain kind of liberal middle-class person who yeah. sees their liberal middle-classness as being kind of threatened by um, migration yeah, um, yeah. or whatever it is. Yeah, that's, that's, that's an interesting thing that this moment that it comes about in the early 2000s um, is at the same time, I mean, a lot of this rhetoric is... Gains a lot after 9-11, right, mm -hmm. in the West. 
But also, yeah, and I don't think that should be discounted as part of the reason for Four Towns' rise. I mean, I, we didn't mention it in the show, but yeah, 9-11 happens yeah. a month into his tenure as head of the Netherlands. But it seems that like parties like um, Pin for Talent List and um, equivalents in, in the UK really, I don't know if it was a strategic decision or just chance, but they really saw that there, there was a sort of form of middle-class uh, white racism that would never use a racial slur, but did have those racist positions towards Muslims. And by offering them a chance to express it as a cultural expression against, quote-unquote, a barbaric religion, rather than an anti-immigration position explicitly, mm-hmm. uh, and to say it's about tolerance, um, was a way that they could grab a huge sector of the political discourse of people who would regard themselves as quote-unquote nice people, but saw a problem uh, where they had to defend liberal values by shifting far to the right. Right. Um, and in a way, Four Towns' sort of flamboyance as a gay man um, kind of uh, washed that, um, washed that uh, story a bit because people were able to say, well, I couldn't possibly be a bigot. I mean, look, I'm voting for a party led by him. Yeah. Um, and that's, I think, a really compelling political offer, again, in a country like the Netherlands, where um, a certain kind of um, bourgeois tolerance is yeah. so important to the national political culture. I think it's also worth pointing out, at the same historical juncture, you also see the rise facilitated by the internet in the West of this sort of skeptics movement slash new atheism which puts the argument for like a quite imperialistic foreign policy um into the framework of the same sorts of defense of the enlightenment values that you see in the arguments of for example christopher hitchens who was previously very much of the left switching towards this um defense of these value absolute values of free speech tolerance women's rights etc I say that all um, with tongue firmly in cheek, but that, that was focused very clearly against um, what they saw as a Muslim fifth column. Like the, the language that Pim Fortune was, Fort, Fort was using really could come from, you know, some of the, what do they call themselves? The four horsemen of new atheism. Absolutely. Um, and then you see now even figures like that still. Uh, promoting a certain kind of uh, race science as tolerance. And, I mean, a lot of this has roots in a few things. One of them is the um, correspondent creation of the scientific mode of inquiry and um, racist modes of classification and colonialist modes of classification and kind of um, the structuring of knowledge in the Enlightenment. Um, oh, yeah, as if Enlightenment values are not in themselves deeply racist. Absolutely, and that's what it is. I mean, it really, you know, the classical liberalism is deeply racist because part of what classical liberalism is, not all of it, I think there are things there we can use, but a big part of what classical liberalism is, is, and what the Enlightenment sort of ideology was, is classifying the world into self-governing liberal autonomous subjects and others who are ripe for exploitation and domination. And there's a strange thing that happens where um, the homosexual as a category also kind of gets created in the um, in this process of uh, kind of the creation of categories. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and so the figure of the homosexual is created as a kind of colonial category, and then the figure of the primitive is created as a colonial category. Sodomy is often used as one of the uh, justifications for classifying a people as primitive or uh, sort of able to be um, otherized or dominated. Then white metropolitan homosexuals develop this kind of ideology of lust for these primitive sodomites and kind of end up building a lot of their identities out of those ingredients because that's Mm. what's been sort of um, circulating around. And then that itself goes in several directions. Sometimes that leads to a kind of limited anti-colonial critique where we think of something like the radical fairies where um, the appropriations are very problematic and also it's led them to a politics of alliance of some sort and then the extent of that politics of alliance can be critiqued. The other thing that this can lead to, though, is someone like Fortown, who is perfectly willing to uh, lust after Arab men, like that part of this attractive to the quote un- attraction to the quote-unquote primitive has stayed, um, yeah. but then he wants to lust after this sort of mythic primitive, but then he wants it out of his society. He doesn't want to live next to it. He doesn't want to be in contact with it otherwise. Um, and this is where we get to the term homonationalism, which uh, is uh, coined in 2007 by Jazabir Puar to describe this process that she sees where kind of at the conclusion of this phase of the gay civil rights movement, or rather as this phase of the gay civil rights movement is really heating up, where in the advanced uh, democracies of the uh, capitalist global north, the um, kind of organized, uh, well-to-do gays and lesbians are beginning to win certain kinds of legal recognition, that what is happening is that those people are then actually aligning with um, racist and xenophobic positions against Islam. Uh, And so then they then align up with these prejudices that migrants or terrorists or whoever are fundamentally homophobic, are fundamentally opposed to this kind of egalitarian Western society, and then the tolerance of homosexuals is then used as kind of the justification yeah. for how tolerant the society that you're describing is. And part of it is because I think these homosexuals that are now being tolerated are often of a class character that means that they're not fundamentally disruptive to the system in certain ways. Um, they're often white, the ones that I'm talking about here. Um, and yet... Paradoxically, the, that movement uh, for acceptance happens so quickly and so generationally that people, it's very easy for people, especially straight people, to think, well, um, think about how far we've come in the past 20 years. I mean, I remember when I was a child, we would never have voted for someone like him. He never would have been able yeah. to be on, out on the streets. And now, look how far we've come, and these immigrants want to come and ruin it. Yeah. And so you see how, how it can get kind of uh, folded in. And the big examples of this that are always used are, uh, first of all, Israel, this claim that Israel is the most tolerant uh, democracy, you know, the only place in the Middle East where gay people can be safe. And, you know, I'm Jewish. And whenever I say anything critical about Israel, I'll get some fucking Gentile who says, oh, yeah, we'll try, you know, going to Palestine. They'll throw you off a building. And to me, that always says more about that person's desire to throw me off a building, probably because I'm gay and Jewish, um, than anything else. But that is kind of the easy response that gets given and, and gets given often in less crude form by very powerful people. Another really good example of this is the Pulse nightclub shooting. So in the sort of throes of the 2016 presidential election in the U.S., um, a Muslim uh, man uh, shot up a nightclub in Orlando, Florida. 
And immediately the story became that this Muslim guy had kind of selected this gay nightclub because this was such a representation of all of these things that he found to be sinful or whatever or whatever. And Donald Trump uh, started talking about how he had to get him in because uh, he was only, only going to be the person who was going to protect gay people from all of these like dark brown terrorists. And then actually it turns out there's like literally no evidence that this guy even knew it was a gay club. I mean, he knew that he wanted to attack a nightclub, but actually very little is known about his motives. If he was white, we would just call him one of these, like, mystery mass shooters. But he's Muslim, so it's like... Yeah. <laughs> um, but, a nice point of mental health problem. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, but anyway, there's no particular evidence that, that he, um, that he uh, sort of aimed, uh, aimed it in that way. Yeah. And so those are the, sorry, I'm ranting here, but those are kind of the classic examples of homonationalism. And then Fortown is one of the most, like, out there, clear, early proponents of it, where really the gay card, and I don't, I use that word in a very kind of uh, judged or guarded way, but I really do mean it here, uh, is kind of deployed to uh, pinkwash a far-right uh, political author uh, and make it appear the result of, or the sort of epitome of, tolerance. Yeah. Bravo. Guy Hockenham had a critique of this, going right back to the start of the sort of gay liberation movement in the early 70s, where he wrote explicitly about white Frenchmen, French gay men, who whose fathers owned factories that exploited Arab migrants in Paris, and they thought they were free from this, and then they'd go down to the, to the bridges and get fucked by our men and they thought this this was like a radical position you know like this goes right back in mm -hmm. terms of fact that he's saying you know you're still engaged in society where your wealth comes from this exploitation of migrants which you then exoticize for your own sexual pleasure one thing i was thinking about uh, a lot in what you were just saying and in when you were talking about Pim Fortun at the start <clears throat> in terms of the way he presented this flamboyant homosexuality um, and you explained it very well I think this thing of the, the, the in colonialism invents both the homosexual and the primitive and then one thing I think it's important to stress is that they then export homophobia to a lot of those cultures mm -hmm. in order to um, in order to colonise them and control Absolutely. them and it's part of the colonisation process yeah. and that's why I mean, I'm sorry, I'm just going to keep ranting here. Well, but I see it fed back to them as a threat to their absolutely, society. Absolutely, absolutely. And you look at, um, you know, we had a, a... I saw a few months ago a map uh, here in Berlin. And the map was of all the countries where, in the world, where homosexuality was still illegal. And it was next to this very kind of um, plaintive wall text that was about how you know, we really have to keep uh, fighting, keep fighting, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And nowhere on this map did it indicate uh, where these laws come from. And so then you start looking it up, and it's like, well, okay, X, the fucking British. X country in Africa, it's the fucking British. It's the same law that the British had in whatever year they showed up. Yeah. Um, and before then, um, I mean, before then, you wouldn't even necessarily talk about sexuality, but certainly, um, certainly quote-unquote homosexuality is illegal, maybe that's not even a concept that would make sense um, in whatever the indigenous kind of sex-gender system was, but certainly it wasn't like this. This fear of sodomy. This particular kind, this particular construction. 
Um, but when you were so when you were talking about this about Pinfort two and using this and as you say playing that gay card in this very flamboyant way, the name that just kept coming back to me was Marlo Yiannopoulos. Oh, absolutely. Who is the current sort of incarnation? Exactly the same argument, which is that I'm the one at threat as a gay man from these Muslims. Um, I'm fighting for free speech and these um, mm-hmm. Enlightenment ideals, quote unquote. And I also can't be racist because my husband's black, which he really weaponizes as a specifically eroticized aspect of his husband's identity as it relates to him um, in order to justify, I, you know, I, I mean, it's just the most offensive thing to say, to say I can't be racist because I, I, I will fuck a person of color. I mean, you know, like um, Jefferson, right? Absolutely. And... Yeah, no, you see it everywhere. It's not too far from Jamie Kerchick. It's not too far from Andrew Sullivan from last season. Um, I mean, I will say that the day that Pete Buttigieg rhapsodizes on national television about the taste of semen is the day that I will die happy. <laughs> How would he know? He's a top by default. <laughs> Don't get us cancelled, Hugh. All right, um... Well, thanks for that. Yeah, I think that, was, that, that opened up a lot of um, very interesting explorations because it's something that is hard to discuss with straight people, I think, and also with gay people who take that take the same position. Absolutely. To, to get into the depths of why it is, because it is an extremely appealing argument to a certain dem- demographic who want, who want to be a good person, um, who uh, who would never verbalise their thoughts in a quote-unquote racist way in terms of using slurs, um, but we'll still make those exact arguments. Uh, and so, yeah, having, having that Absolutely. And there's good. also this, I mean, and then there's a real resistance among an older generation of gay men to think critically about this because the word homonationalism and the idea that something still feels to many of them like a liberation struggle um, has somehow been co-opted is really difficult for a lot of them to hear. And I think that's true even of people who wouldn't necessarily vote for a four-time party. Um, But just yesterday, uh, this is interesting, just a fact to close off, a poll came out of Austria showing that there is no difference in gay and straight male support for the uh, Freedom Party, which is the far-right party there. 20% of uh, gay men and 20% of straight men vote for the Freedom Party. Um, A lot more gays are greens, though. So if people want to learn more about Pim Fortown, um, there is a really excellent profile of him that was written just after his death in The New Yorker called Beyond Tolerance by Elizabeth Colbert that does a really good job um, and was one of my main sources for this. There's also a really um, troubling but factually interesting academic article by Peter Jan Margrey called The Murder of Pim Fortown and Collective Emotions, Hype, Hysteria, and Holiness in the Netherlands. Um... I don't know anything about Peter Jan Margrie's politics. Reading it, I was struck sometimes by his sympathy to Fortown, uh, but I think he does do a good job of talking about how the hype around Fortown's death led to um, the kind of institutionalization of a certain kind of Fortownist common sense in Dutch politics. And then uh, this is a little bit hefty, but if people want the kind of defining text on homonationalism, uh, the book is by Jazabir Puar and is called Terrorist Assemblages, Homonationalism in Queer Times. And that was published in 
2007 and is still very hotly debated. Thanks so much for listening to the show. You can follow me on Twitter at Hugh Lemmy, or you can subscribe to my newsletter, which is at hugh.substack.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at Ben Writes Things. And you can follow the show at Bad Gaze Pod. If you liked what you heard, please visit patreon.com slash badgazepod to donate, and or you can leave us a review on iTunes or your podcast provider to help us grow our audience. Thanks so much. See you next week. Bad. 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 Bad.